Welcome to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. Ontario's healthcare roadmap is clearer. Also, Hamilton house fires. To buy or rent? AI concerns. Bell slashes and burns. And hail to the Chiefs. Enjoy the GMH podcast. This is the Good Morning Hamilton podcast on 900 CHML. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau and Premier Doug Ford uh, late last week came together and they announced how the province is going to spend $3.1 billion in new federal health care money. While we're pleased with the progress, we know there's more work to do, a lot of work to do, actually. That's why today's agreement is so important to strengthening our health care system. How so? Let's ask our next guest. Colin DeMello is Queen's Park Bureau Chief for Global News and joining us on GMH. Colin, good morning. How are you? Good morning. Thank you for having me. How does the province plan to spend all this money? Well, it seems like the bulk of the money is going to be going towards uh, f- uh, family doctors. Uh, you, you know, currently in Ontario, uh, there are a lot of Ontarians who don't have access to a family doctor. And Premier Doug Ford had said on Friday that, uh, you know, there are a lot of people who are presenting to emergency rooms who don't necessarily need to be there. Maybe they have a sniffle, maybe they have a sore throat, maybe it's not a non-emergent acute situation that could be dealt with with a family doctor, but if people don't have access to family doctors, that's what's partic- uh, that's what I- I is in part creating part of the burden on the healthcare system. So the premier had indicated that they want to spend the bulk of this money on attracting family doctors and having more family doctors because Physicians themselves are saying that healthcare workers have been leaving the sector in droves, and that is creating more pressure on the remainder and the balance of the healthcare workers who are still showing up to work every day. We've heard from a lot of healthcare providers who say the admin work is really the killer. Is there any news on whether or not this money is going to help in that regard? That's one of the things that the health minister had kind of talked about, right? She said, okay, well, For family doctors, if part of the job is filling out forms and that cuts into the amount of time that they could actually see a patient, then the province is looking at somehow cutting down on either the volume of forms or simplifying the forms uh, that they have to fill out so doctors can get back to the work of uh, doing the patient work right away. Uh, You know, a lot of the system obviously can be a bit antiquated. And so I think the province has been looking at really trying to modernize the healthcare system, particularly when it comes to old school fax machines or old school paperwork that you have to do by hand just to expedite that process so that doctors and healthcare workers can get back to watching over patients faster. It's pretty wild that fax machines are still being used. Uh, we heard that uh, lots of money is going to go to create more primary care teams, something that the Ontario Medical Association has been calling for for a while now. Could we see more of a one-stop shop for healthcare? Yeah, I mean, that is the idea, right? Instead of having to go to uh, one place for one type of service or another place for another type of service, you know, what the government wants to do is cluster these uh, healthcare providers together, right? So you might get a doctor, a nurse practitioner, there might be um, a nutritionist, or etc. So that, you know, you're, you might be able to get um, holistic care. Uh, these health teams have to be, in some cases, created by uh, the province or the hospitals themselves. So they have to be these, these clustering of healthcare individuals that have to come together. The timeline for all of this is really unclear as well, right? How quickly can a province that has already struggled with a tr- Attracting healthcare workers attract more healthcare workers. That's one of the problems that you know some doctors have pointed out that you can put a lot of money into this, 
But ultimately, if people are reluctant to get into the profession, or at least into the profession here in Ontario, then you know you have to rely on other challenge, uh, other um, options. That's one of the reasons why the government said, well, any healthcare provider who wants to come to Ontario, they can start practicing right away and work towards their accreditation in this province rather than getting the accreditation first and then practicing. It's called, um, you know, as of right, they can import their credentials from whatever province to Ontario with a snap of the finger. And, and that's the province's kind of way to speed up the amount of doctors and nurses who can operate in Ontario because there's such a shortage of healthcare workers. Our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML is Colin DeMello, Queen's Park Bureau Chief for Global News. We're talking about new healthcare funding, or at least a new model of funding that the provincial government plans to employ. We're also, Colin, seeing more private health providers helping via OHIP. And last week, we learned about a new healthcare clinic in Ancaster that's run by nurse practitioners who are charging patients for care. The Ontario Health Coalition saying, listen, this is against the rules, this is illegal. The nurse practitioners say they want to be allowed to bill OHIP and are calling on the province to do so. Is the Ford government looking at these type of, I guess, out-of-the-box options? I, the, the government has been looking at all kinds of out-of-the-box options, but I don't know if necessarily opening it up to, you know, private pay systems is what the province would be looking for, right? I mean, the province has always said that your OHIP card will be what you put down when you're walking out of the doctor's office or any clinic um, run by the public health care system in Ontario and your credit card. And so even if you're going for a private surgical center, as an example, or any kind of private healthcare facility that offers public health care, you'd still be paying with your OHIP card. So, you know, I I wouldn't see the province necessarily opening the door to having nurse practitioners come in and be able to charge patients out of pocket, uh, because ultimately, every time the provincial government allows out-of-pocket expenses, the federal government can ding the province through the Canada healthcare transfer. So the federal government can withhold money from the uh, province of Ontario uh, for every cent that a, um, you know, a, a user has been charged. So the province is very reluctant to do that. And especially this government that's taken a lot of heat over the private delivery of healthcare. Um, they are very reluctant to open up the door to any kind of you know, idea or thought that they're privatizing anything. Last one for you. Got about a minute. New this morning on globalnews.ca, financial support for Ontario colleges and universities. What have you uncovered? Yeah, this is really important. I mean, colleges and universities are really quaking in their boots after that international student uh, cap that was brought in by the federal government a couple of weeks ago. Uh, They're saying that, you know, without international students, a lot of them may find themselves in financial jeopardy. In 2019, the Ford government had limited um, the cap, uh, sorry, the um, uh, tuition I- increases. So they cut tuition and they froze tuition as well. You know, the budgets for uh, colleges and universities didn't see an increase uh, since 2019. And so a lot of them are saying we could be in jeopardy. Now the Ford government is indicating to us that there could be financial supports coming for the colleges and university sector. We don't know how much, but it could be by the end of the month that they're going to find out exactly how much more they're going to get from the province. Universities, as an example, have been calling for a 10% increase to their funding. Colleges want a 5% increase to their funding. Uh, How close to those numbers will the Ford government get? We'll have to wait for a couple of weeks. Interesting stuff. Colin, always appreciate the time. Thanks for joining us. Have a great day. 
My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Colin DeMello is our Queen's Park Bureau Chief at Global News. More on that uh, financial support for colleges and university stories online, 900CHML.com and globalnews.ca. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. There were 302 structure fires in Hamilton last year. 228 of them were house fires. What do you think the main cause of house fires in Hamilton is? Well, the answer might surprise you. We've heard time and time again that unattended cooking, a fire that starts from a a pot or a pan left on a stove while you're not paying attention, is the leading cause of house fires in Ontario. In Hamilton, it's careless smoking. Here to talk about it is Fire Chief Dave Cunliffe, who joins us on GMH. Chief Cunliffe, good morning. How are you? Great. How are you? I'm good, but uh, sad to hear that careless smoking is number one, and number one for the third year in a row. What is happening in this city? Well, it's really concerning. Uh, Certainly, um, as you are saying, Rick, the uh, careless disposal of uh, smokers' materials has been the number one cause for the last couple of years. Um, We also are seeing unattended cooking electrical as being top causes. When it comes to careless disposal of smokers' materials, what we're finding is... uh, you know we're having we're having a lot of fires uh, on exterior of of uh, buildings and it's getting into the into the residence so people are smoking on their decks their front porches uh they're not butting their uh, smokers materials out into a uh, proper ashtray or a steel or metal can what's happening is they're you know flicking that uh the butt they're dropping it down between the deck they're putting it butting it out in the planter and next thing you know, it smolders for a little bit, and then we've got a, a deck fire going that's now growing in intensity and size, and it's going up the sides of the house, and it's getting into the uh, into the eaves, and now we've got a full-blown structure fire. 37 house fires in Hamilton last year were started because of careless smoking. That's actually down from 49 in 2022, but 37 means an average of three a month. I I can only imagine that firefighters who are responding to these kind of fires, yeah, they're going to put up the fire, but they must feel frustrated that, you know, we're here again because of this. Well, you know, one of the things that is frustrating for everybody is that the top three causes, actually all of the top four causes are behavioral based. And these are fires that are, are preventable. Because, you know, it's, it's human behavior that's causing this. And so, you know, the other piece, too, is that the careless disposal of smokers of materials can, ex- can be extremely um, concerning from the fact that we also are seeing people that are falling asleep uh, with uh, smokers materials in their hands, uh, whether they're on a bed or a couch. And next thing you know, they're waking up and the couch is on fire, or their bed is on fire, they're in it, and now they're scrambling to try and get out. The other disturbing fact is is that, you know, con- uh, in conjunction with these top causes, we're still seeing a significant number, almost 50% uh, of the residences that we have structure fires do not have working smoke alarms. So with a uh, smoke alarm, we're not getting that early warning. And we, we all know that fires are burning hotter and faster today based on what things are made of. And without that, you know, minute to spare, uh, when that smoke alarm goes off, we're also now seeing, you know, folks that are getting injured, uh, smoke inhalation, and unfortunately, dead. Uh, they're dying in these fires as well. Yeah, you're right. There were no working smoke alarms and 47% of the house fires in Hamilton last year. That's a troubling statistic. We have a minute left. I want to ask you about, is there any kind of new... Uh, you know, a deterrence campaign that uh, Hamilton Fire Department is going to be launching to, you know, uh, uh, remind residents to not do what they are clearly doing. 
Rick, we uh, on a regular basis are out uh, letting people uh, know the importance of uh, you know changing behaviors. Um, you know, when you're uh, when you're smoking, you got to make sure that you put put out the 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 smoker's materials in appropriate canister or ashtray. When you're uh, in the kitchen and you're cooking, you want to make sure that you don't get distracted. And if you do, you need to turn the stove off. And, I mean, yesterday morning we had another, early in the morning we had another kitchen fire. Uh, it was 2 o'clock in the morning. Somebody had left something on the stove, and next thing you know we have a kitchen fire. So, you know, the, we're doing it through social media. We're doing it on our websites. Our folks are out there at, at various groups in the schools, seniors uh, organizations, uh, we're doing what we can to try and get the message out, but you and I both know that changing behavior is not an easy thing, and quite frankly, it's the person themselves that needs to change their behavior. Well, we're glad here at CHML to get that message out and always uh, happy to help. Chief Cunliffe, thanks for the time today. Thanks so much, Rick. That is Hamilton Fire Chief Dave Cunliffe offering some sobering stats in terms of house fires in this city. Too many caused by preventable actions, careless smoking, Unattended cooking, uh, these things can and should uh, be corrected. It's up to you to do so. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. So here's a question for you. Is it cheaper to buy or to rent a home in Canada right now? You might be thinking, well, that's an odd question. One's got to be cheaper than the other, right? Wasn't that long ago that you would hop into a house And mortgage payments were okay. You can certainly make ends meet. Same for, you know, the rental game. Wasn't that long ago where you can, you know, easily and comfortably rent a space and feel confident. And here's the most important thing. Feel confident that you would be able to save enough money to jump into a house. Boy, have times changed. So Zucasa is out with a report that used... The average price of a one- and two-bedroom rental unit across the country. It also looked at mortgage rates that were calculated assuming a 20% down payment and a fixed five-year rate of 4.84% over 25 years. And I know you're looking at that 484 and thinking, eh, wish I can get that number. And it found, and this is really interesting, it found that Winnipeg was the only market where it was cheaper to own a home than to rent. And not by much, by just $5 a month. In Hamilton, let's bring it home. The report shows that the average rent of a one- and two-bedroom rental unit, I think this is kind of low, $2,005. And the average mortgage payment in Hamilton was $3,483. Not sure where you stand on that scale in terms of rent and home. You might be above or below both of those numbers. And hopefully in your case, it's below. But I know many of you are well over that number, whether you're renting or buying. And when it comes to the rental game, and this is back to my comment of, it wasn't that long ago where you could rent, save up, and then make a down payment on the house. And so I have a, I have a couple of difficulties with this report, but good on Zucasa for looking at this. And, and the big bugaboo I have, or at least one of them, is that they're assuming a 20% down payment on a mortgage. And I'm thinking, who the heck has 20% of a down payment in this neck of the woods where the average price is north of $700,000? I don't have that kind of money. 20% of $760,000? 
is a heck of a lot of money. And so here is the other thing. A lot of people are trapped in renting. They cannot get out of the rental unit or cannot save enough money while they are renting to put that down payment on. Even if it's 10%, it's impossible when you factor in the cost of everything else. Interest rates, if you have a credit card or a line of credit, the price of food, gas going up and down, and I've noticed has crept upwards over the last little while. These are all big problems and all big parts of a problem in which we can't get people into solid housing. It has contributed to the homelessness crisis in this community and beyond. And again, one part of this study, which I think is kind of flawed, was the 20% down payment. If that's cut down to 10, I, I would guarantee that the rental affordability, if you will, would be much more acceptable. Also looked at, at numbers in Burlington. If you're living in Burlington, average rent, 2,367. That is fourth highest and in terms of average monthly mortgage payment, you're looking at 4808 Way cheaper to rent. But again, are you saving money spending basically $2,400 a month on the average rent in Burlington? Also looked at St. Catharines. A lot more affordable compared to Hamilton and even Burlington, for sure. Average rent, $1,769 a month. Average mortgage in St. Kitts. 2561. And all the way down the list to Regina, last on the list in terms of average monthly mortgage payment, 1373 in Regina, 1311 to rent. 1373 average monthly mortgage payment, 1311 to rent. Uh, people renting right now are trapped. Absolutely. We've got a couple minutes to spend with our other guest, Carolyn Witzman, a housing researcher, invited professor at the University of Ottawa. Carolyn, good morning. How are you? Good morning. I'm fine, thanks. We don't have much time, but I do want to ask you, uh, in terms of the rental and housing crisis, is is there one magic pill or bullet to solve this thing? No. (laughs) So now (laughs) we can end the interview. Um, I mean, uh, clearly there isn't enough of the right supply in the right location and uh, at the right price. And that's going to take coordinated effort from all three levels of government. I also made the suggestion, too, that a lot of people who are renting right now, they, they cannot save up for a mortgage. They seem to be trapped. That's correct. So um, uh, some research by a group called Generation Squeeze have found that it would take about 17 years for a middle-income person working in Hamilton to save up for a 20% down payment. All the while, within that 17 years, prices are going to go up, right? Interest rates are going to go up, inflation going to go up, like the cost of things will be no, more expensive. I mean, if it's a business-as-usual scenario, yes. I mean, I don't think that we can continue very much longer with this situation of growing homelessness, um, home ownership being entirely out of reach, and frankly, um, middle-income rental is very hard to find, and if you're low-income, it's virtually impossible to find. So we do need to start looking at non-market housing to end homelessness and to help low-income people. We need to start looking at massively ramped-up affordable supply for moderate-income households 
And um, yeah, I mean, I don't think that we can continue with things getting worse and worse and worse. At some point, we do have to do something. We only have 30 seconds, but immigration is going to put a lot of pressure on this, too. Well, Canada doubled in population from 1981, uh, 1941 to 1981. It didn't double in population again from 81 to 2001. So Canada is a country of immigrants. It's not a matter of immigration. It's a matter of bad policy that includes policy that isn't taking into account who we need to serve, including newcomers. Well said. Carolyn, thank you for your time this morning. Thank you. Carolyn Witzman is a housing researcher, invited professor at the University of Ottawa. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. We're talking about artificial intelligence. And it sounds like more and more Canadians are turning to AI tools, even though we're kind of concerned about this technology. There's a new Leger poll that came out, and it shows that 32% of Canadians are using artificial intelligence tools. Some of them don't even know it. And that's up from 25% a year ago. But two-thirds of the respondents in this poll said the prospect of having them in our lives is scary. Marvin Ryder is a professor in the DeGroote School of Business at McMaster University and joins us on GMH. Marvin, good morning. Happy Monday. Thank you. Good morning to you. With more AI being used, these poll results should not come as a shock, right? No, I, I'm not shocked by them at all. But, but Rick, if you don't mind, I'd just like to back up for half a second. Uh, we treat AI as if it is something new. Uh, AI has been around ever since computers were first created. We've had it for decades. The uh, popcorn button on your uh, microwave oven, the reheat button on your microwave oven, are examples of AI, artificial intelligence. The facial recognition when you turn on your phone to make sure that it's you and not somebody else, or the thumbprint reader, that's AI. We, so we've been using AI, the, the little beeper that goes off if you veer out of your lane when you're driving your car, that's AI. So we've been using AI tools forever in a day. I'm just not sure why people are shocked about it. So when I see a poll that says that 32% of Canadians are using AI, I laugh because we're all using AI in some way or another. <laughs> Now, you noted we don't always realize we're doing it, and that is certainly true. And the way uh, we tend to define AI today are advanced, advanced tools like a chat GPT type tool, or I, uh, there's a, a, an app you can get that allows you to take these wonderful photos and enhance them and so on and so forth. So I, I get it. And are we worried? Of course we're worried, uh, mostly because, again, <laughs> You don't even know you're using AI. So uh, if you go to your banking website and there's a little box that opens up and says, hi, I'm Bill. Can I help you today? Uh, you're probably not talking to a live Bill or a real person. You're probably talking to some artificial intelligence. You just don't realize you're even doing it. So in a way, I think these poll results, while they're interesting, are also quite invalid because it has wormed its way into our life in so many ways. We don't even realize we're using it. It's absolutely true. There was a colleague uh, at the radio station here. I won't name them, but they, they, you know, added the sentiment that I don't even know how much AI is in my life, which is kind of scary. But I, and I guess the big fear is, you know, is my job going to be taken by AI? Is there a a sector of the economy that should be more worried than others? Well, again, the answer is yes, absolutely. The history on this planet is that we 
tend to find ways to automate jobs which we see as being least important. Let me try to explain that quickly if I can. Uh, at the end of the First World War, more than half of Canadians worked in agriculture. Today, it's less than 10%. What have we done? Well, we created mechanical tools, things like big combines and big plows and big tractors, and that reduced the amount of labor we needed to produce the food that we need. We still need the same amount of food, but we reduce labor. At the end of the Second World War, almost half of Canadians were in manufacturing. We know here in Hamilton uh, in the 1950s, early 1960s, uh, tens of thousands of people worked in steelmaking. We produce as much steel as we ever have in Hamilton, but we do it with a lot less labor. Why? We've automated away some of those jobs. So the next sector is the service sector, things like banking and teaching, what have you, very labor intensive. No shock then that we are finding ways to apply these tools to automate and get rid of jobs. Uh, along the way, by the way, we're working shorter hours. Once upon a time, Canadians worked on average 60 hours a week. Now, for many people, it's more like 30 to 35 hours a week they work. Um, concerns there about pay rates, what have you. But no shock at all. Uh, if we can get rid of uh, labor, we do it. That's just the way we, we uh, become efficient in what we're doing. Last one for you, three quarters of the respondents in this poll said AI tools lack the emotion and empathy required to make good decisions and threaten human jobs. And if we look into the future, my guess is AI is only going to get more intelligent, if you will. Is that a good thing? More intelligence and more empathetic. So all AI, artificial intelligence, uses an algorithm to replace the human interaction. Uh, uh, an algorithm is basically applied logic. No wonder that at this moment the applied logic seems quite cold and insensitive and too mechanical, but that's the starting point. Uh, over time, they're going to augment these uh, algorithms to get them to be more empathetic, more emotional, more understanding of the person on the other end. That's the only way they can go. And I think at some point, yes, absolutely, you're not going to realize that you're working with an AI chatbot you're actually going to think the real live person is there. Uh, should we be worried about it? Yes, only in the sense that while it can do a lot of good things, we've also seen technology that enables a lot of bad things. And that part does worry me. What would a nefarious individual do with the same tool that a very a positive person is trying to make a difference in the world? So unfortunately, technology, we have to embrace both the intended consequences and the unintended consequences. It's pretty fascinating stuff. Marvin Ryder, thank you for breaking it down with us. Glad to be with you. Marvin Ryder is a professor in the Groot School of Business at McMaster University. Some other numbers to chew on from this Leger poll, which again shows that 32% of Canadians are using AI, but two-thirds say it's kind of scary. How about this stat? Those of you who have used AI services or tools generally had a good experience with them, 71% rating them as good or excellent, which is positive. When it comes to relying on AI to find a life partner online, a quarter of respondents 18 to 34 years of age trusted the tech to do so, compared to only 10% of those older and 55. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Well, Bell has done it again. Slashing thousands of jobs, selling a bunch of radio stations, drawing the ire of many, including our Prime Minister. I'm furious. 
This was a garbage decision by a corporation that should know better. Last Thursday, Bell Media announcing it was eliminating more than 4,000 positions, ending multiple TV newscasts, uh, making other programming cuts, selling 45 of its 103 regional radio stations. What is the impact? Randy Boswell is an associate professor of journalism at Carleton University and joins us on Good Morning Hamilton. Randy, good morning. Hi, Rick. What does this mean for the state of journalism in this country? Well, it's a it's a major blow on top of a series of uh, previous blows that have been happening since really the last 10 to 15 years. Um, uh, so it's 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 pretty devastating. It's not surprising, I would say, that there's been a strong negative reaction to what Bell announced. Um, I think it's fair to say there has been kind of a, uh, you know, um, uh, an agreement on the part of the company and other companies who who have been pushing the federal government to support local journalism, um, uh, you know, to do exactly that. And now uh, it's, it's fair to say that this is, um, you know, turning the page on that um, on that stance. And so uh, naturally the company's coming under a lot of criticism because of course it's still a, it's still a profitable, com- a profitable company. And, uh, and, and it was, um, uh, it, it was tough for people to see these cuts at the same time as, um, you know, uh, shareholders being paid a, a higher dividend uh, on, on the day that the announcement was made. Yeah, a bit of a head scratcher there. The Prime Minister obviously uh, showing his displeasure of this move. We heard from BC's Premier who had some strong yeah. words saying shame on them. And a lot of people saying that, you know, this is going to just lead into the the dilemma that we have in media, and that is so much disinformation out there. Are you concerned? Well, I think everybody, um, uh, every citizen should be concerned. It's not just uh, folks in the journalism business like us. Um, you know, the, the, the challenge we face is that um, uh, this is a, a, a sort of a, a, a golden era for misinformation and disinformation, as we all know. Um, uh, there's been a lot of uh, difficulty in trying to harness the impacts of social media and um, polarization in politics. And so the bulwark against all of that misinformation and disinformation is good journalism. But at the same time, we all know the, the journalism business model um, has essentially collapsed in the digital era. And so uh, there's been a scramble, uh, a struggle over the last decade and more to figure out how to fund uh, uh, how to sustain credible journalism uh, in an era when the economic model is not um, uh, amenable to it. And so, uh, you know, governments like the one we have uh, in Ottawa have attempted and are attempting in various ways to provide that kind of support, you know, but they don't have control over private companies and what, um, and what those companies uh, uh, decide to do with their own workforces. Um, and so even though, uh, you know, the prime minister had strong words, um, you know, there was a, a degree to which um, he, he looks impotent to try and uh, uh, counter what's happening here, uh, you know, tisk, tisking the company for laying off uh, workers, including many hundreds of journalists, um, uh, it, 
uh, isn't exactly a strong response. Added to this equation is Bill C-18, which is trying to force companies and has in some respects forced Google to, to pay. Meta is still on the sidelines and refusing to pay in terms of uh, you know, sharing news links or news articles on their social media platform. How big of a factor was that in Bell's decision? Well, I think that um, you know both C eighteen and C eleven. They're two two uh, two separate acts that are uh, intended at uh, at the end of the day to 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 bring revenues uh, to uh, some additional revenues to Canadian journalism um, um, institutions. Um, uh, in some ways, that this hasn't moved fast enough. It's been, uh, I would say, less successful than what the government intended. Um, and then there are other regulatory matters that a company like Bell uh, is complaining about, uh, you know, under CRTC regulations. Uh, and so it's complicated. It's a it's um, it's it's a difficult environment for the news industry to be operating in. And I guess what you know part of what uh, critics of Bell have counted on, um, partly because of the things that Bell has been saying over the years, is that they re retained a commitment to supporting local journalism. And now their actions are suggesting that that was a lot of talk and not really the kind of commitment that, um, uh, that uh, others have been expecting. We have 90 more seconds with Randy Boswell, Associate Professor of Journalism at Carleton University, talking about the Bell Canada cuts due to uh, of programming and positions and selling some of its radio stations. Bell said that radio is not a viable business anymore. Now, I might be biased, but I beg to differ. Uh, I, I think this company completely mismanaged it. What's your take? Well, I think that one of the things that comes out of this is that um, you know they're they're going to divest um, uh, dozens, uh, over forty of those uh, radio stations, and it may be the case that under different ownership, those stations can thrive and um, uh, and and um, you know recover or sustain some of that. Um, news and information programming that um, uh, that looks in jeopardy right now. So um, it, it's possible that the the model that a large corporation like Bell and the and the kinds of revenues that it's expecting, um, you know, may not fit the 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 radio stations they're talking about. But other ownership models might work. Um, that said, we're we we are in a difficult situation industry wide. Um, because of, uh, you know, the, the collapse of the advertising revenue model for supporting journalism. And so, um, uh, and it's, and this all comes at a time when, as everyone keeps saying, journalism is more important than ever so that we get the straight goods, accountability coverage of governments, all of that is really important. And so uh, it, it does leave us in a very difficult dilemma when it comes to figuring out how to sustain good, credible information. Uh, at the same time as the economics are not adding up right now. Well said. Randy, thank you so much for your time this morning. Enjoy the day. Okay. Take care. Randy Boswell, Associate Professor of Journalism at Carleton University. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Usher bringing down the house last night in Vegas. Halftime show was, I thought, Pretty good. I voted for good in our poll question of the day, which you can find on X at AM900CHML. How would you rate the Super Bowl halftime show starring Usher? Amazing, good, bad, or I didn't watch. 
Right now, most of you saying good, 36%, although that bad vote is creeping up, up to 30%, 20% didn't watch it, 14% saying amazing. You can add your voice on the text line at 905-645-3221 and share how you would rate the Super Bowl halftime show starring Usher on email, rick at 900chml.com. How did it compare to previous years? Well, let's ask Jordan Foster. He's a Ph.D. candidate in the Department of Sociology at the University of Toronto who joins us on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Jordan, good morning. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Thanks for coming on. We've come a long way since the University of Arizona and Grambling State marching bands played the first halftime show of the NFL-AFL championship in 1967 uh, fast forward to 2024. Um, yeah, we've come a long way. It's And it, and it was a, a good showing, I think. I would have voted good as well. <laughs> I, I like that Usher brought with him sort of the pomp and circumstance of the Vegas Strip. That was very much on show. And his featuring artists like Alicia Keys were, I think, a nice addition. I would say, and, and I'm just being completely honest, I don't recall a halftime show in which the guest star, the cameo appearances, kind of outshone the featured artist. And I thought that was the case last night. What do you think? I would agree with that. I mean, mind you, I'm a little bit biased here. I'm quite partial to Alicia Keys, so that was a, a really significant moment for me on set. And Usher's sort of rise to fame is just a little bit before my time. And I, I wonder if that's going to shape people's reception, especially members of Generation Z and younger millennials who may have been watching yesterday. It's a good point. Usher's 45. He's not 25. And while he has a lot of fans, he has you know, a lot of fans in a certain demo that go back, you know, 20 years. Right, right. Which is, um, you know, again, something that's relevant in this case because Taylor Swift was in attendance and we know that she brought an audience with her, so to speak. And that audience skews a little bit younger. Absolutely. That's a good point, too. Uh, guest stars. You mentioned Alicia Keys. We also saw Jermaine Dupree, her, Will I Am, Lil Jon, Ludacris. Not really any surprises there. No, it was, I mean, I think not surprising per se, but it's it's wonderful to see such a star-studded cast. That's something that seems to be sort of on the uptick in a lot of the Super Bowl halftime shows, maybe with Rihanna as a recent exception, who had a show largely featured around herself. Mm -hmm. Which was a great one. I thought one of the all-time best. She did a phenomenal job while carrying a baby, I might add, uh, last year. So how does the Usher halftime show last night, how does it rank against the other top all-time best halftime shows? That's a good question. I'm curious to see how what audiences ultimately make of this particular show. I saw, for example, that the New York Times critics have uh, given this quite a strong review. I'm not sure I would put it in quite uh, so high uh, a position as, say, the New York Times did this morning. I would probably put this at about the halfway mark. I think that this show um, was, again, very star-studded. It was visually interesting. It felt a little smaller in scale in some respects than previous halftime shows. I don't think it was as sort of fantastic or imaginative as some of the shows that we've seen in recent history. Rihanna comes to mind, Lady Gaga, Katy Perry, who had massive sets and a lot of spectacle attending their shows. That was the case certainly in 2022 when we had Dr. Dre and Snoop Dogg and Mary J. Blige, Eminem, like that. That set was was enormous. 
Yes. Yeah. Even uh, Beyonce comes to mind again as someone who really knocked it out of the park uh, some time ago now. Um, but I'm not sure, as I said, that Usher's performance is, is quite so fantastic as some of these ones in recent memory. Jordan Foster is our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Jordan is a PhD candidate in the Department of Sociology at the UFT, and we're talking about last night's Usher Super Bowl halftime show in Las Vegas. Of course, with all these halftime shows nowadays, it comes with the announcement of a new tour. Is is the Super Bowl halftime show still a massive draw for the biggest names in music? Yes. Oh, without a doubt. And I mean, we saw them, of course, performing last night. We saw many musical artists in attendance as well. Uh, it has traditionally been used as a launch pad for different uh, musical releases, sometimes for the announcement of other culturally relevant uh, events or moments. Uh, in, in this case, it wasn't just Usher who's sort of, um, you know, speaking on a tour, but Beyonce actually announced uh, her upcoming album last night, which is really interesting and dropped two singles late last night. So you can see artists um, sort of from across the, the musical realm are using this as a platform and probably will continue to do that to make announcements related to their, their music uh, or events that are coming up. And that's strategically wise because there's so many eyes on the Super Bowl. Last year's Super Bowl uh, was the most watched broadcast television event that year with 115 million viewers. And estimates this year suggest that uh, this year's Super Bowl will receive a larger viewership than years past. That's hugely significant. And so this would allow an artist to reach such a wide audience. Can't wait to see those final TV numbers. That's going to be, uh, I think, an eye-popping all-time high for the Super Bowl. Jordan, we'll leave it there. Thank you so much for your time this morning. Have a great day. Thanks for having me. Jordan Foster is a PhD candidate in the Department of Sociology at the University of Toronto. Where would I rank the Usher halftime show? I'm just going to go back a few halftime shows, and I'm going to stop to where I think it is better than halftime show X. So last year versus Rihanna, no way. Rihanna takes that cake. She was phenomenal. 2022, perhaps one of the best all-time halftime shows. The Dr. Dre, Snoop Dogg, Eminem, Mary J. Blige, Kendrick Lamar. That was outstanding. 10 out of 10. 2021 of the weekend? I'm not going to take Usher over the Canadian. Weekend was great. 2020, Shakira with J-Lo. Bad Bunny was there. Nope, not better than that one. 2019, we got to go back to 2019 for Usher to be better than this halftime show. And it was probably the worst halftime show, well, since, you know, the marching band era or the Carol Channing. Carol Channing, I should say. Maroon 5. Remember the Maroon 5 halftime show with Travis Scott, Big Boy? Oof, that one was rough. That one was rough. We've had some good ones. Lady Gaga, uh, Beyonce, Bruno Mars, Katy Perry with The Shark. Remember that? Prince, maybe the all-time best in 2007. Tom Petty, The Boss, The Who, Madonna, Rolling Stones, McCartney. There's been so many great ones. I shouldn't leave out Shania Twain, another Canadian making her mark on the halftime show in the Super Bowl. By the way, Super Bowl 59... Odds are out. Big game going February 9th, 2025. Number one on the list, and no one's surprise. The Kansas City Chiefs. Odds on favorite to three-peat at 5-1, to one, followed by San Francisco at 6-1, to one, Detroit at 7-1, to one, Baltimore 12-1, to one, and the Buffalo Bills come in at number five at 14 
to one. Thanks for listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday mornings from 530 to 9 on 900 CHML and online at 900CHML.com. The Good Morning Hamilton podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your favorite podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free so you never miss an episode. And make sure you rate and review.